Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Samantha Seeley about her book, Race Removal and the Right to Remain, Migration and the Making of the United States, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Dr. Seeley is an assistant professor at the University of Richmond. Race, Removal, and the Right to Remain explores how, at various levels of government and among a variety of people, the right to remain and who was subject to removal was debated in the early United States. Dr. Seeley's study illustrates how Native Americans and African Americans in particular had to navigate a myriad of challenges to their place both within and outside of the nation. This work reorients the history of U.S. expansion and reconsiders how the United States was built around the movement and non-movement of people. Dr. Seeley, welcome to the program. To get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this project and why you decided to study it? Sure. So I started this project in graduate school as a dissertation, and I followed a footnote from Elizabeth Barron's Disunion. Um, about a series of petitions that were submitted by free Black Virginians in Virginia in the early 19th century, um, asking the state legislature for the right to remain. And so I followed that footnote and started to look at that body of petitions. um, And it turned out that they were submitted both to the state legislature and to the county courts in Virginia in the early 19th century. And those petitions were a response to a law that was passed in the state in 1806 that said that people who were newly emancipated had to leave the state upon emancipation. And I was really surprised by that law. It wasn't something that I knew about at the time. And I was also really struck by the petitions themselves, which use incredibly detailed language to describe why people deserved the right to remain and wanted the right to remain in the state of Virginia at the time. And um, they ended up being these sort of rich descriptions of the impact of removal on people's everyday lives. And so that made me think about all the different ways the sort of fear of removal might have impacted early Americans and how present removal actually was as an idea in everyday life for many people in the early years of nationhood. So out of those petitions, I started to formulate a project around removal in the early U.S. Republic. So the kind of popular understanding, I think, of the post-revolutionary period is one of free movement, the movement of um, settlers, for example, white settlers to the frontier. And that understanding, I think, has been with us for a very long time since the kind of founding of the profession itself. And so the book that I ended up writing um, from those petitions kind of flips that story upside down and says that it was actually removal that was um, was kind of omnipresent, um, just as much as free migration. And so because removal was so central to state making in this period, the idea of a right to remain became a crucial part of both African American and Native American politics in the period. So what many people actually wanted um, was the ability to remain rather than the right to move. Um, Even when 
you know, circumstances sort of propelled people to leave. So one of the book's real central arguments is that this pursuit of a permanent home um, lay at the crux of the post-revolutionary era and post-revolutionary freedom. And I really liked the sort of um, the relationship between this uh, process of removal and all of the um, sort of complicated um, histories that go into that. And as you say, the um, right to remain Mm -hmm. and how those two things sort of play together during this period. And as you say in the beginning of the book, you know, removal is something that um, anyone, you know, sort of familiar with U.S. history, pre-Civil War, Mm -hmm. would probably associate more with the latter parts of the 19th century and not with this um, part of U.S. history coming right out of the revolution. Mm Yeah, I mean, I think that's true that usually, I mean, at least in kind of K through 12 education, the way that removal is taught, like the period that it sticks to is the 1830s, and it appears kind of as a blip or a moment. And so part of what I was trying to show is that that it is a process rather than a moment. um, And it goes well beyond the antebellum period. And so the goal of the book is really to push back that very term removal, and to show that it was um, instrumental in the immediate um, post-revolutionary period as well. So it was it was actually proposed as a lot of the as a kind of quote unquote solution to many of the quote unquote problems of the American Revolution. So problems of land or um, finance or slavery and emancipation that all kind of cropped up in the early years of nationhood. And so um, the book is trying to show um, removal as this kind of foundational concept in American life and politics. Um, It's a much longer process rather than this moment. It has these precedents in the early Republic. Um, And so I do that by showing both the kind of debate about removal. So what was happening um, in Congress or in the pages of newspapers or in the states and the state legislatures, and then also how that worked itself out on the ground, because there were all of these ideas about removal that were kind of floating around in public life and political life, um, but they didn't always work out the way that their that planners thought they might. Um, and so I think the the goal of that is really to once again sort of challenge this idea that free movement is the story of the early national period. Um, instead, to flip that script and to say that um, removal is just as much the story of the period. And one of the things that you start the book off with is, even though this is sort of a story of the, you know, post-revolutionary period, the early national period, is you talk about uh, America's colonial history and how Mm -hmm. that informs this entire process going into the revolution and afterwards. And so how did uh, America's colonial past uh, inform this history of removal? I mean, it's always hard to decide on when a book begins and ends, I think, um, especially with a story like this one. And so a lot of the colonial historians or, um, or sorry, historians of the 17th and 18th century who I was speaking to um, kind of encouraged me to think about this deeper history and the way that it might have influenced or provided the kind of precedence for what happened later after the American Revolution. And I found that like long durée look to open the book to be really helpful as well, because there certainly were models that people were calling on very directly. Um, removal, of course, was one of the most common answers to social challenges or social ills um, in the Anglo-Atlantic world or perceived social ills. So uh, colonial and metropolitan officials in the British Empire thought that the transportation of large groups of people 
to new places would basically um, reform individuals and open up colonization as well. So it would reform people who were convicted of crimes. It might suppress rebellion and internal dissent. So it was often kind of a way of targeting, quote unquote, internal enemies. Um, removal was used as a way to support claims to territory or to solve the um, to solve poverty. And so there's a lot of talk in the 17th and 18th centuries about how to basically manage population or um, large groups of people to serve the ends of the empire. Um, and you can see this in vagrancy statutes and poor laws and criminal transportation, this belief that removal might mitigate all of these things. Um, it also, you know, comes up in the slave trade in the way that Africans were defined, defined as removable. Um, it powers colonization and the way that, um, and the theft of land from native peoples. And so all of those things, I think, by the 1780s start to cohere into something really different, into a different kind of conversation by the time the United States is founded. Because um, in the 1780s, American legislators also saw these precedents as something that they could harness to mitigate the sort of dangerous effects of revolution. So um, obviously, removal is turned against loyalists for a time um, as a way to mitigate loyalist disaffection. Um, and so removal comes to kind of inform these early national debates about actually who the people are themselves right in the midst of revolution. And um, how to deal with disaffected people, people who um, don't want to be in the new United States, like loyalists. But then the interesting thing is that while um, many loyalists were exiled, many of them are also kind of invited back into the nation. Um, it's a story that is sort of papered over in the end. But the other kinds of war stories that someone like Robert Parkinson has talked about recently, stories of native violence or slave rebellion, those things remain in place. And um, they end up kind of characterizing particular groups of people as outside of the nation based on race and thus as still removable. And so speaking about how, you know, this uh, sort of colonial past and understanding of previous sorts of histories of removal um, sort of get transformed in the American context following mm -hmm. the revolution. Uh, one of the things that you start with is looking at Native Americans and sort of the effort, the initial efforts to remove Native Americans from their lands. Mm -hmm. And so how successful was this initial effort and what did it look like in the first decades of the new nation? I mean, it was a, a history of failure from the U.S. perspective, I think, because it was contested by Native nations and um, particularly by Native confederations. So removal was, you know, appeared as these kind of totalizing plans from the desks of federal planners. But when it came to how it was actually worked out on the ground, it looked quite different. So um, it was it was not inevitable, certainly, and very contested. So in um, the region north of the Ohio River, um, the United Indian Nations, for example, was really successful at stopping surveyors um, from coming into their land, at stopping militias, um, at contesting U.S. military presence and power. Um, Native diplomats across the Trans-Appalachian West were reaching out to other empires on their borders to make new kinds of alliances. And so for the early years of the U.S. Republic, those U.S. efforts to claim Native lands um, by right of conquest, that's the kind of language and terminology that they used, 
those efforts didn't go as they had hoped. Um, they, the U.S. kind of efforts to demand land sessions as the price of peace with Native peoples after the American Revolution uh, were not successful. And that's because, you know, the U.S. as a kind of political formation also wasn't, was a pretty weak state um, as well in this time period. And so they couldn't possibly have managed to do all that they, uh, that they wanted to, although they, they certainly kept trying. Um, but they were contested at every point by Native confederations and um, also by the states who had, who were competing against each other to make their own agreements with Native people. So um, there was a kind of messy politics there um, within the U.S. Confederation as well. And then white migrants who were constantly kind of going ahead and um, doing what they thought was best because they had this sort of narrative about the American Revolution as guaranteeing free movement and the right to land for themselves as well. And so ultimately what the chapter is trying to, that chapter is trying to show, um, chapter two is trying to show that this led to a lot of sort of hand-wringing in the press and in Congress about the morality and the practicality of removal as a policy going forward. And so as the United States was sort of, as you said, um, failing in many instances to actually remove Native Americans, uh, Native Americans, as you said just now, were, you know, making their own efforts to actually remain. And they were claiming and articulating, as you've talked about, a right to remain. And so Mm -hmm. what sort of language, what were they saying? What did this look like? And, you know, how did they claim a right to remain in order to upset these plans of removal? Mm -hmm. So the um, political formation or confederacy that I focus on is the United Indian Nations north of the Ohio River. And um, they sought to defend their sovereignty and their lands by thinking about a country held in common. So um, the idea that they're articulating is that this place north north of the Ohio Valley is going to be um, a country held in common, and they basically refuse to negotiate with the United States if they don't recognize that space as a country held in common, um, and to recognize the Confederacy as the kind of political body that needs to be negotiated with instead of individual Native groups. And so um, they also are demanding that the U.S. relinquishes their preemption rights over the that space, and um, that they relinquish the idea that that the Ohio Valley had been Seated by right of conquest after the revolution, um, because they hadn't been party to the Treaty of Paris, which ended that war. And um, so all three of those ideas are sort of present in, in the, their politics of the period. And so, and within the United Indian Nations, they're also thinking about what which borders should they keep um, that would best help them to defend against the United States. So how to think about the geographic space of that region um, as uh, most as a as a best defense against the incursions of the United States as well. I think one of the things that I found so interesting about the language that these Native American groups are using uh, is one of the things that you just mentioned, how they uh, sort of they band together and they say that, no, you need to negotiate with us as a whole and not as, you know, individual tribes and nations, because this was something that the United States had, um, you both the British Empire and then later the United States would try repeatedly to try and sort of undercut any sort of claims of sovereignty that Native Americans had was to sort of just 
try and, um, you know, behind do- back doors or whatever, uh, you know, negotiate with an individual uh, tribe or nation in order to get some land and then sh- sort of like wedge their way into an area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we see um, certainly like after this period um, in the early 19th century uh, happen again and again. So there's huge land loss and um, in the kind of early 19th century treaties in the first decade of the 19th century that come out of exactly that strategy by U.S. negotiators, um, which is that they try to play different Native peoples against each other um, in order to like encourage people to sell more and more land. And one of the things that you talk about uh, when it comes to Native Americans and, you know, this right to remain and the removal um, aspirations of the new nation is that removal necessitates movement, um, even if it is coerced and forced movement. Um, But as you point out, Native Americans uh, in the United States clashed over how the latter group uh, moved and how free they were to move. Um, Native Americans often had a different vision, as you pointed out, of what movement looked like. And so what did that vision uh, by Native Americans look like and how did it clash with the United States' own vision? Well, I think removal is one thing, right? There's there's this kind of forced movement that's happening um, or that is, you know, that federal planners or state planners are kind of focused on. But then there's also just the matter of travel as a political problem as well for um, people who wanted to control others, which is that, you know, travel and mobility is dangerous. And there's a power to mobility as a kind of political tool. And so in the fourth chapter of the book, I sort of explore that idea of mobility as as a kind of political power. And so I begin with an Odawa messenger who is spreading the news of a religious movement led by the Shawnee prophet in the early 19th century. And the way that U.S. military commanders tried to follow the spread of that news um, via this particular messenger as best they could because they knew that the kind of routes that people took... um, and the, the news that they carried with them um, could create new kinds of solidarities and new religious and political movements. And so um, movement and travel more generally could be a kind of strategy of resistance. And um, for the United States, keeping people place bound was also uh, a goal for early federal policy. It was seen um, by, by people, for example, under the Jefferson administration, but earlier as well as a way of um, reducing landedness and as a tool of land theft. So it was really this idea of pl- placing people in particular spots was essential to the federal civilizing mission um, in, in kind of quotes there. So this idea of um, trading houses, federal law, civilization plans were all about attaching people to particular spaces in the service of taking um, uh, pieces of their land for the U.S. federal government. And so um, while some people tried to use those, this idea of um, placidness to their advantage, while some Native people certainly tried to do that, they um, weren't particularly successful in the end. And they couldn't have known that at the time. But um, the, this, you know, the federal government was really trying to use placidness as a strategy um, to take more lands for themselves. And along with Native Americans, as we've talked about, um, the other group that you mainly focus on in the book are free and enslaved uh, Black Americans. And when it comes to removal and a right to remain, one of the sort of biggest 
um, sort of events or movements that, that defines this period is African colonization. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with what African colonization is, because a lot of people um, have not learned about it before, can you sort of explain what the basic premise is behind that um, and sort of the rationale behind why what what it was and why um, some white Americans and even some black Americans would have wanted it. Sure. So, I, I mean, I think that colonization, again, is a term that we might associate with a much later period um, with the kind of takeoff of the American colonization society after 1816. Um, and we don't necessarily connect it with this earlier period. So the American colonization society, for example, was founded um, to support this um, to support the removal of free African Americans from the United States to Liberia, this um, new kind of colony of Liberia after 1816. And so, um, usually, you know, because the ACS had this kind of um, huge mouthpiece and publications and a really kind of growing um, structure of you know or, of organizations at the state level. Um, the ACS gets a lot of attention, but of course there were precursors to this idea um, far earlier as well. So um, beginning in the 1770s, this is something that people who are writing um, anti-slavery tracts were also talking about was the idea of sending free African-Americans outside of the space of the colonies and then the nation as the kind of price of freedom. And um, so by the, the period that I'm looking at, after the American Revolution, there are a couple of different constituencies who are interested in this. And um, so we see like in a place like Virginia or in the Upper South more broadly, um, lots of slaveholders were kind of interested in colonization as a way to mitigate what they saw as the dangerous effects of Black freedom. So a way to preserve slavery um, by sending free people who'd been emancipated outside of the state because they thought that free African-Americans might foment um, revolt or resistance by enslaved people. Um, in something like for some writers in the Mid-Atlantic or in the North, um, some white writers in those um, areas, they thought that free African-Americans could never have citizenship because um, white people wouldn't allow it, for example. And so their their only chance for equal citizenship was by leaving the United States. There was also a kind of separate movement, um, but the constituents overlapped in some ways um, of Black mutual aid societies in Northern communities who were examining immigration um, and thinking about leaving the United States to create colonies overseas as well. So really kind of inchoate um, pieces, which is why I think this period gets less attention in the history of colonization, because it's hard to define. There are lots of different people who are kind of following uh, or talking about these ideas for different reasons. But certainly for um, white writers, the goal was exclusion um, and was kind of reducing black freedom. And as you point out, when it comes to black freedom, movement um, was a very integral part of how black people sort of theorized and actualized their own freedom. And as you've just said, um, many white Americans sort of had a fear of, you know, unmitigated black movement that would come with black freedom. And so that you talk about this sort of restriction of movement at, that comes with freedom. And so what does that look like? And sort of what were the responses to it? Yeah, I mean, because movement could be incredibly emancipatory too. Just as, you know, I think this really mirrors the point that 
um, I was talking about a couple of minutes earlier, and it mirrors the kind of first half of the book and that travel and mobility could be this mode of resistance. It certainly was under slavery. And it was also for free people because it gave them choice um, about, you know, uh, where freedom felt the freest um, and, and how to design a free life for themselves. And so uh, one of the things that the southern states and then the mid-Atlantic and western states are also doing in this time period is is restricting the movement of African-Americans. So um, in Virginia, the 1806 law was absolutely about um, restricting immigration and residency. And um, that really, that law comes out of a colonizationist petition that's submitted in Petersburg in the early 19th century. So these things are absolutely linked to colonization, removal, and migration restriction. Um, after that law is passed, all these other states kind of follow. Um, so there were similar laws in Delaware and Maryland, um, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. They all create these laws kind of restricting um, Black migration into the states. And I think in the Midwest in particular, it's really about imagining what um, free states would mean on the ground. So um, it was about imagining the Midwest and those Midwestern states as places of white freedom rather than black freedom. And I think I find it so interesting sort of thinking about how how much movement was tied to freedom um, when it came to uh, black Americans, simply because, you know, slavery itself, the institution is sort of defined in many cases as um, control over one's body and the sort of the ability of that person to move from place to place. And so we often hear about, you know, enslaved people, you know, having to have passes, for example, just to go to a neighboring plantation or something like that. And so as you just said, you know, movement becomes something that is sort of integrally um, part of freedom for black Americans and sort of the, the response, you know, as this Petersburg petition, as you were just talking about, um, to, you know, just the sort of very fear of movement by black Americans. I find personally, I find very interesting. I think for a lot of our listeners, it's something that, you know, the petition that you were just talking about and that you, um, opened, uh, this interview with, you know, that's something that a lot of people probably haven't heard of, um, and sort of this larger movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we think about just the kind of archival architecture that comes out of those restriction of movements. Like you're saying, like the, the passes are um, free papers that people were, you know, by law supposed to carry, although it seems like um, that didn't always happen, which is something that we can talk about the kind of difference between law and practice. Um, but the sort of, that sort of surveillance that was so important to slaveholding was also um, important to the way that individual states were trying to structure and limit black freedom in this period. And so one of the things that you just mentioned that I think would, would be interesting to talk about is sort of the law in practice and in theory. And so when it comes to, say, like these passes and stuff like that, what's going on there when it comes to the way the law is supposed to sort of manage movement, but maybe doesn't so on the on the ground? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can certainly you can see this in all of the different kinds of laws that were on the books in the southern states trying to limit people's movements is that sometimes people followed the letter of the law, but they often didn't. So there were, for example, like registration statutes on the books in Virginia that required free people to register with the state every so often. And some people did that, but um, they didn't do it as often as the, the law said they were supposed to. 
Um, or sometimes they never did it. And so you get these kind of snippets in the archive explaining um, when people felt the need to do that um, and when they didn't. And um, the petitions, I think, are a really good example of that difference between what, what state legislatures were saying and then what people actually did. Because the 1806 law would have impacted a huge number of people, but actually the number of people who petitioned for the right to remain um, is quite small in comparison. So at the state level, um, the petitions to the state legislature, there were um, several hundred of those in the time period that I looked at. And then there are more that go to the county courts, but it's nowhere near as many as the number of people who are becoming free in the time period. Um, and so, again, just interesting to think about when people felt like they really had no choice but to do that. And um, it was, you know, times when they felt particularly under threat from a neighbor or um, when they felt like their own individual circumstances or their own kind of travel necessitated that they do something like that. But generally, um, it supports what the literature says, which is that um, state legislatures might have said something that was based on their politics and a kind of demographic politics in which they saw Black freedom as threatening. But when it came down to it, um, people, you know, white neighbors of black men and women didn't necessarily want to see them go. And so when you look at the kind of community level, um, things, things don't look the same as they do from, um, the state capital. Yeah, I know from my own work, uh, sort of looking at some similar material, um, I find it interesting how, um, at times, you know, the, uh, accusation of allowing unfettered black movement would be leveled from certain white people against other white people um, as sort of a, you know, political strategy, as a way of getting back to someone, as a way of, you know, affecting someone's livelihood. And I, when you were talking, I just had this example pop in my head um, from my own work of this person who writes a letter to a South Carolina um newspaper defending himself because apparently people have been spreading rumors that he had been writing passes for enslaved people um to just go about during the night and basically writing them a blank check yeah yeah that's so interesting i've also seen um things like that in the archives of virginia too that's fascinating and so when we're talking about you know one of the things you were just you were just talking about is how um black americans would sometimes uh actually follow the processes that they were supposed to by by law and sometimes they wouldn't but in many cases um there are a lot of black people who want to remain um in the states that say they were born and raised in that they had even been enslaved in um even when this comes to the southern states and i think a lot of people who say, like, you know, we're talking like about K through 12 education, even um, some college education where some people, the history of this uh, of slavery, they're sort of more used to a sort of a vision of slavery where people are going to try to escape to the north, whether that be, you know, Pennsylvania or maybe New York or Canada in search of freedom. Um, but as you're showing here, there are a lot of people who don't want to leave. And so how and why did black Americans fight to remain in Southern states? Yeah, that's a great question. If you look at the petitions themselves, which, um, you know, I should say are certainly likely the work of a collaboration between, um, the black men and women who put their names on them and probably white lawyers or neighbors as well. And, um, you know, 
So we can think about authorship in this kind of wider frame there, but they're really, really detailed about why people wanted to stay. And so um, people talk about their family members who are still in slavery um, and how they want to remain close to family members, which, you know, again, if we think about black, about black family formation in this time period, people were always forming families across these lines of slavery and freedom because freedom was so rare in a place like Virginia. So, um, you know, that appears a lot or um, people say, you know, like I have connections here and I have the ability to make a living and support my family here because of those connections. Um, I have property here that I don't want to leave. So they, um, you know, they have these really kind of detailed responses to that question. And, um, and they're, yeah, they're just really kind of poignant um, explanations of why people would want the power to remain um, in a slave state. And that's because it's still, you know, they've created these kinds of bonds of community there. And I think, you know, going along with some of the other um, topics of your book and everything, I find this, I, I think this is a really interesting topic because, you know, if, if, freedom of movement is integral to, um, you know, black visions of freedom, especially for, um, people who were formerly enslaved and actually get emancipated. Uh, you know, the ability to move from one place to another is something that they tie to their freedom. You know, as you've talked about in the book, um, up to this point to begin with, and as we've talked about in this interview, the right to remain is also tied to that, you know, black people aren't, associating freedom with you know pure transience for example you know just because they want to be able to move freely does not not mean that they literally want to be moving all the time yeah absolutely and and that like the right to movement as a general kind of framing is also about the right right to decide when you stay somewhere and so many of the laws across the states at this in this time period were trying to restrict immigration and thus the right to like to choose your home or domicile. So we have, you know, this great book in front of us, and I always encourage our listeners to become readers and go and pick up the book for themselves. Once again, it is Race Removal and the Right to Remain, Migration and the Making of the United States by Samantha Seeley. So we have this great book in front of us. What might we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? And I know this just came out like a couple months ago. Um, there's still a lot going on. So if you want to say that you're taking a much needed break, that is completely okay. <laughs> a much needed break sounds nice. I do also have some um, ideas in the works. So I'm really interested in following this book up with a uh, book that similarly kind of mixes um, the social history of migration with top-down histories of state formation, but this time on an international scale. So I'm really interested in how travel across international borders could alter the legal rights of people in the late 18th century. So I'm looking at how early Americans used diplomatic encounters in North America in the age of revolutions to negotiate slavery and freedom, um, even as kind of imperial borders were shifting. And so I'm looking particularly at treaties and the way that both um, anxious and slavers tried to preserve their property rights um, at treaties through um, fugitive reclamation, and then also how enslaved people were using treaties to their advantage to claim freedom with neighboring neighboring powers as well. And then I've got another idea that's a little bit more vague that um, would look at the year without summer and um, climate and migration. 
Well, both of those sound very interesting, and I'm sure once they are completed, we'll have you right back onto the program to speak about them. But in <laughs> Not any... for a long time, though. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so, but, you know, in any case, this place will probably still be around, and we will have you right back on. That's very kind. Thank you. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on and speaking about your book today. Great. Thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate it. <laughs> 